I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, author of The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. Activist Sally Cohn is our guest today, and we're delighted to host her. One of the last surviving deep political thinking talking heads, if we can be brutally honest, and the host of the podcast State of Resistance, Cohn has penned an illuminating account of our nation's crisis of hatred, which appears more and more to be an epidemic, infecting our politics, our psyches, and our very American creed. Cohn says the opposite of hate isn't love, it's connection. She writes, you don't have to love people to not hate them. You have to see that you have something at your core, a fundamental humanity, a fundamental goodness. She adds, we have to do something about the way in which our lives and our communities are segregated, increasingly ideological, also racial, economic. It's a very interesting thing about the gay thing. You can have these stealth gay people, I was one of them, where I was dormant in my family the whole time. Then suddenly, surprise, I'm gay, and they already liked me, so it worked out well. And that's why we had such quick progress on gay rights as a country. That doesn't usually happen, say, with black people or Muslims. Your cousin doesn't just suddenly one day come out to be Mexican. Welcome, Sally. Your words, all brilliant words. Thank you. That's so kind of you. It's nice to be on with Um, you. Is it getting any better? (laughs) Do you you want me to hold you and tell you that it is? I mean, would that make you feel better? Not at all. Look, it's, if you want some comfort, it's not as bad as it's... I mean, there's a, a lot of people think, well, this is as bad as it's ever been. We're as divided as we've ever been. And people seem to forget that uh, we have a history of brutality uh, and injustice in this country. In many ways, we're a country that was founded on, that was created through uh, brutality after brutality, division after division, uh, you know, and that we fought a civil war that we have been divided before in as many ways as there are to be divided. So I'm not sure if it's getting worse or not. It feels certainly in the last two years like it is. And I think part of the nature of social media is that we're so surrounded by it and also all participating in it that it can feel in a lot of ways um, louder and more severe. But to my mind, it doesn't have to be the worst it's ever been to be bad enough that we have to do something about it. I think you said it. We've had disunion. If you think about slavery, if you think about something as recent as Matthew Shepard, if you think about the brutality, it has been pretty bad in here. Um, before I ask you how we repair it, yeah. um, reading your book and seeing something on Twitter just the other day made me depressed. Well, that's your first more, mistake. You right, shouldn't Twitter, see anything right, okay, on okay. Twitter. That's, but that's here's, here's, yeah, here it is. Because you say key to empathy and key to, to rescuing our soul, is parenthood. So the Parkland students, um, we know the ones who have been active in pursuit of gun control, gun safety. And then there's a contingent that's not. They're actually students of the Parkland school who oppose gun control measures. And they were arguing with each other about who's being exploited mm-hmm. monetarily, uh, who, who is a pawn, uh, who was on the Ellen DeGeneres show, who, who is supported by the, the NRA. And I just thought, isn't this the hate, and what is the opposite of that? But is it 
the millennials, the post-millennials, are they going to learn um, to extricate from the Twitter sphere where it, it is just this, this kind of unleashing of ad hominem and attack, attack, attack? I don't like to uh, ascribe the problem to any one generation or, or for that matter, anyone. It just doesn't, like, we could talk for days about who does it worse and who did it first. And I, I look, I have opinions. I have opinions about which side, if we're thinking ideologically, uh, tends to be worse and all that. It, it, on some level, it matters. And on some level, it really doesn't. Because the fact is, we have a problem that we have to fix. Now, I do think... Uh, one thing that we need to do more of is, is unpack notions of civility, kindness, respect, all these things, and to understand that when we're talking about them, we're generally talking about two things. We're talking about interpersonal niceness, kindness, civility, respect in the way we interact with and talk about and treat one another, and that would include online and off, and then there's justice radical kindness, respect, civility with respect to policies and politics, actually how we institutionalize uh, and, and systematize ideas and norms of equality and justice and dignity for all into our actual laws and policies and practices. And neither one of those is sufficient. Neither, again, we could also talk which is more important. Okay, they're both important. They're both important. It is, look, part of the reason I'm a progressive Part of the reason I believe in fighting for justice and equality for all is because I actually believe all people are equal and deserve equal opportunity, respect, and justice. And so that should inform, if I'm being morally consistent, that should inform both the policies and, and politics I support, but it should also inform the way I treat people as individuals. We've had moments in our history where we've failed on both those fronts or one or the other. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, look, you know, tisk tisk for how you treat people online. Yes, it hurts my heart when I see people engaging in ad hominem attacks online. And at the same time, we had a period in our country where, according to scholars, the most civil period in American history uh, in the late 40s to the late 50s, was when both sides uh, of our government, the Democrats and the Republicans, were very civilly perpetuating some very, very messed up laws and some extreme injustice. In the, so it, it is actually about uh, recognizing the problem across the board, seeing it in its different forms, taking some responsibility for how we ourselves are all part of the problem and what we do about it, and then figuring out how we walk and chew gum. Yes, it matters how you treat people one-on-one, -on -one, online and off. And it also matters what you stand up for in terms of politics, candidates, policies, institutions, hiring practices, neighborhood segregation, school policies. Uh, all of that matters too. The example of the Parkland students, it, to me, the fact that these folks were, were debating victimology here and who... Who suffered more? And, you know, the heinousness of, of the opposite p political prescription to the problem. Um, just to me, it was, it was like, how do we not have a leader who, who can help us transcend 
those difficulties right now, or or a new generation of leaders, and maybe it's these newly elected congressional office holders who will inspire that? You know, I think we are, for a set of complicated reasons, we are a, a country that both politically and culturally seems to place a value on victimhood. And Again, that is for some very important historical reasons, and part of the part of what is beneficial about talking about patterns of marginalization and suffering, and especially the communities and, and identities that have been on the receiving end of that historically in the past and, and still in the present, is to have ways to name injustice, to have markers with which to point out and call out injustice. And at the same time, even those who say they are opposed to that conversation engage in uh, politics of victimization themselves. Donald Trump is, of course, a perfect example of someone who supposedly rose to prominence uh, you know, by being willing to say anything, anti-political correctness, complains that the Democrats want to turn everyone into victims, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what does he do? He's always being... The, playing himself the victim against the media. Uh, he talks about the, you know, he doesn't use this language, but basically the disaffected white working class and how they're being victimized. So it's a, there's a, there's actually a phenomenon and it comes from international relations in intractable conflicts in deep, historic, uh, divided regions called competitive victimhood. And what happens in competitive victimhood is that we're so busy fighting over sort of who's suffering worse. And, and, you know, look, if we look just the right way or if we go back enough, you can make a case that anyone is or anyone is. But the point is, the point is, everyone's suffering. And in these dynamics, we do know that, you know, look, with the exception of a small handful of people, the economy isn't benefiting anyone. We know that racial segregation, racism, misogyny isn't benefiting people. It's hurting men and women. It's hurting white people and black people. We, we know these things to be true. We have data to show it. And yet we focus on, well, the other dynamic is that we end up focusing on, well, how am I, how am I suffering? And maybe how am I suffering more than you? And we tend to not talk about how we then are part of the problem, right? Because look, suffering, victimhood requires perpetrators, and the fact is that the vast majority of us in some ways are victims, in some ways are perpetrators. But we tend to only talk about and get uh, sort of social political currency for talking about the ways in which we're victims. We need to start talking about, not with blame and shame and anything like that, but, but with responsibility, with clear-eyed, uh, uh, solution-oriented responsibility about how we're also all, in some ways, perpetrators including perpetrators of injustice, hate, discrimination, and bias. Right, and that goes to your point of how do we unlearn to hate in these kinds of situations? And what's the answer? <laughs> well, look, I mean, it, like anything, right? Part of you, you can't learn something until you've seen it, right? You, you, can't re, you can't solve a problem until you know you have a problem. Right. And that actually is a big piece of this puzzle. You know, uh, in the book, I talk about, as you said, the opposite of hate isn't love. You do not have to love someone to not hate them. You're welcome. You don't have to like them. You have to see this connection. You have to experience and understand this connection. And this idea, look, it, as I said, it goes back to, for me, moral, uh, a moral grounding. There's a moral and a political re- or practical reason for this. Morally, look, if I say I believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people, then the question is, do I really mean all people? 
not just my people, do I actually mean all people, including those who would deny my equality and my humanity? If I believe that equality, dignity, justice, humanity are not conditioned, they're not something you earn, right? Because of where you were born or because of how hard you worked or because of how much is in your bank account or because of, right? They're not something you earn. They're something you, you have by virtue of existing. Then in theory, that means I believe other people have it, not just they earned it by treating me nicely or respectfully or treating others nicely or respectfully, right? And, and so there's, there's that moral component to it. There's also a practical piece here too, which is, look, I, I want the world to change. I want the world to be better. I want us to be a more just, equitable, fair, and, and respectful in all senses of the word place. And I have never seen anyone change, nor read about, nor heard about, nor seen research that shows people change because they've been hated into it. Because someone screamed at them enough that they saw a new way of thinking, right? Sure. We tend to change, right, through our experiences, through our exposure, right, through reflection. And when we understand how that happens, we understand that the opposite of hate is actually connection, making those human connections and being brought along to see the world differently than we have. But the possibility, recognizing that that's even a possibility, requires an investment, not even investment is the wrong word, requires a faith, mm-hmm. requires a faith that all people have the potential to be good. There are folks who harbor the, the hatred or resentment as a function of bad experience, not mm. good experience. And when you actually see the real life flesh of a problem, it's not what they've uh, considered. It's Correct. not, you know, it, and sometimes like Kathy Kramer, the scholar who studied rural Wisconsin, when you take the microcosms, then you light them up and you, and you ha- extrapolate what someone in rural Wisconsin feels who supported Scott Walker and maybe saw their condition didn't improve after right. three terms or right. three elections of Walker. Now they have a progressive Tony Evers taking office. Right. That those folks in rural Wisconsin weren't actually denied opportunities because of what was going on in the state house or what Scott Walker was making the boogeyman out of. Right. So that's what I was interested in your well, thoughts look, on. I, you know, one of the things I did in my book was I. Um, in addition to the research uh, around hate and hate groups in all forms, I spent time with ex-neo-Nazis right. and former terrorists. And one of the things I did was I uh, looked at genocide, the phenomenon of genocide, and spent then time in Rwanda with people, including people who had participated in genocide and now renounced their hate and dealt and looking at the very complex, I mean, that's an understatement, interpersonal and... Uh, political implications of that. One of the things that struck me the most was in preparing for that trip, I talked to a philosopher named Elizabeth Minnick, and she pointed out that, you know, look, we don't have mass atrocities because psychopaths. They're just, there fortunately aren't enough psychopaths, and there weren't enough in Germany or in Serbia or in Rwanda. Numerically, it's not possible. The reason we have mass atrocities, in fact, the reason we call them mass atrocities is because masses of people participate in them participate in them, including people who, by the way, believed themselves to be good before, during, and after. That, that's, that when we, when we actually, because what we tend to do, in fact, even in the way we talk about evil, is we tend to sort of, these are extraordinarily bad things that extraordinarily bad people do. And sometimes that's the case, but when we look at things like genocide, and when we 
dial that back to just look at sort of quotidian, what more quotidian hate, the kind we have in our country, the kind not just, we're not just talking about the overt bigots, the explicit hate, but the unconscious bias, right? The fact right. that we have, we have people who are policed differently, statistically policed differently in this country because of their skin color, not just because of a handful of overtly bigoted police officers. Thank God there's not enough of them. The reason we have disproportionate treatment in policing, in schools, in jobs, in, is because of pervasive bias. Now, to me, I call it hate still. It may not be conscious hate, but it's unconscious hate. It comes from the same spring. It comes from the same history of bias and hate in the past and the same institutionalization and systemization of those ideas of difference and discrimination in the present. And we actually are all part of the problem. Well, and we can be frank and objective here in that that is what Donald Trump revived. I mean, he revived the tolerance of the shifting from the implicit hatred back to a more explicit. And there's a roadmap. I sure. Mean, the concerns you describe in Rwanda are not the ones we have today here, thankfully. Uh, but as your facial expression demonstrates, and mine too, mm-hmm. we're concerned that a hatred of immigrants um, can lead to that path. Um, basically, their conditions of implicit bias. And has before bias. in this country. Donald Trump was the vehicle for achieving that resurgence. I mean, we've seen hate crimes explode. We would not have, again, we wouldn't have the systemic, statistical, unarguable reality of classism, racism, misogyny, etc., etc., you know, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, were it just for a handful of overt bigots. You can't, you can't, the, 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 there's, 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 there's a mismatch, right? We have a bigger problem than we, than we have, fortunately, over bigots. Now, it's true, right? There's a whole conversation we could have about, well, actually was a lot of that bigotry, just sort of overt, explicit bigotry, uh, you know, sort of pushed the margins because people were ashamed and now Trump has made it feel safe and comfortable and even positive to be overtly hateful again. Fair point. But at the same time, Thankfully, the vast majority of people actually don't ascribe to be sexist or racist. Or they don't. They don't want to be. And yet, we have a, we have systems, institutions, policies, reality that is continually shaped. That can only continue to exist, propped up by that that dynamic. So it has sure. to implicate all of us in some way. Are you and, hopeful, Sally, that well, we are going to spit? this out of our system. What happened in 2016? This will be an aberration. This is going to... No, but that's my whole point. That's my whole point is it's not an aberration, right? Donald Trump is not a cause. He's a symptom, right? And, and look, you... I mean, just, just pick, sorry, pick <laughs> one more example. For 60 plus years, the Republican Party, to an extent, the Democrats, specifically Bill Clinton, but by and large, the Republican Party has been a, an explicit strategy of theirs to mobilize resentment in this country, particularly around fear, particularly around racialized fear. This is an explicit, and I'm not like, this isn't conspiracy theory stuff. This is like, Nixon said it. He said this was his strategy, right? And of course, as you point out, Roger Ailes, architect of Nixon's strategy, then designed Trump's strategy. And so people like myself say, well, look, there's a, there's this ongoing systemic dynamic where we have a mainstream political party, one of the two, that is deliberately ginning up fear, hatred, and resentment in the voting base. And it's going to have this cause. 
And then what happens is, now watch the intellectual jujitsu we pull off here. Then what happens is you have people vote this way, and a lot of people like me say, well, they're just hateful. Well, they're just inherently racist or inherently, and without, we, those of us who believe in systems, believe in and understand the way that culture and, and the thumbprint of culture and politics and policies and systems, that, that thumbprint that it leaves on all of our conscious and unconscious minds, we see that when it comes to us, but when it comes to them, we say, no, 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 they're, they're just hateful. They're just hateful people who voted that way, who acted that way, who did those things, who believed those things. They're also a product of systems and structures and culture and right and listen it's one thing to blame the leaders and i'm not saying give people a pass we still have free will you still have you get to choose but they are also the product of systems of hate as well right their thinking their understanding has been shaped deliberately by a desire to manipulate them with hate I wasn't asking you, though, Sorry. if, if, if uh, no, 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 it's fine. I wasn't asking if the Republican Party would spit out that, uh, the, the ALS tactics. I, are you heartened by the shift in some more traditionally conservative Republican districts and states, Arizona, uh, that there will be less of a tolerance for, for Trump's um, rhetoric in 2020, by which point a consensus will have formed in this nation that the electoral map, if we believe in our better angels in Arizona and New York and the Rust Belt, that will overcome. And it will not just overcome with defeating Trump, but a resounding defeat. Um, or, or are you not hopeful of that? I mean, depends on the day you ask me, right? Yeah. Like, for being honest, uh, I... I think we are going through a pretty profound existential crisis as a country that is masquerading as a short-term political contest, but really is a a pretty profound Mm. uh, conflict. And it has to do with, look, in some ways I think it's actually, this is a longer conversation, but in some ways I think it's a constructive movement away from elitism, right? Like we are finally, as a result of, economic forces as a result of some political forces, certainly as a result of social media, we are starting to, and at the failures of globalization, we're starting to, as a people, as a country, rebel against elitism in a way that I think is profoundly healthy, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and at the same time, as we start to, I think, reshape and reshift the kind of center of political gravity and what we're fighting about, what we're, what we're increasingly fighting about is, all right, if if uh, the sort of governing orthodoxy of American politics for the next, you know, era will be about populism, right? Uh, Then the question is, what kind of populism? And we're really engaged in a pretty profound struggle about whether we have an inclusive, democratic, uh, just populism for all, or an exclusionary, fear-mongering, sort of hate-fueled, otherizing kind of populism. And we see that contest taking shape all around the world in different forms and in different ways. So, uh, you know, um, I'm not... (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm hopeful in the sense that we're having these conversations, right? I'm hopeful in the fact that, like, we as a people in our country are talking about, you know, misogyny, and white supremacy and 
you know, economic exclusion in ways that we haven't for a long time, if ever. And I think that is constructive and helpful and positive. I think we're kind of fighting about the right things. Does it mean that uh, it gets resolved anytime soon? (laughs) I I think we're in for a big, long fight here. Yeah. I mean, you have to just go back to the fact that Trump was a marginal figure, even within the Republican Party. I mean, to the point that he won pluralities, he didn't win majorities, he won as a function of a lot of other folks in that Republican primary circus. Um, And folks have described this as the perfect storm. But he is such a marginal actor in the sense that he he represents um, uh, maybe a, Repu- a certain kind of Republican voter in, in recent years. Mm. Um, but um, it's I still don't want to believe it's the it's the core, the fundamental humanity that you that you talk about in the book, because I don't think he represents our fundamental humanity. I think well, it, they talk about the opposite. God right? help us yeah. if he does. Look, I, I don't I think it's. Dangerous to suggest that Trump is too marginal a figure. And in a way, you know, look, I, call, I always hesitate to say this, but, you know, you get, the, you get the president you deserve. And in a way, Trump is a perfect avatar for this moment in American history, this moment where we are really, on the one hand, we are so in love with the myths of our country both the myths that were kind of rewritten and reconstituted of the past, as well as the present about economic opportunity and the American dream and so forth. And at the same time, we are deeply, as a country, we are deeply um, fractured over whom and and how those ideas and ideals should apply. And I mean, that's, by the way, that's part and parcel of the American story forever, right? We, We are a country that was literally founded with lofty ideals, and uh, failed to live up to them at almost every single step of the way. Well, I think right? so, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch will uh, document whether or not he is a marginal figure, whether he's been absorbed in our, in our jurisprudence, in our law, and, and it's, not, it's, it's not about America or the Constitution anymore. It's about, it's about Trump. Oh. We're out of time. You have final thoughts. No, no, we're good. We're good. Yeah, yeah. Sally, <laughs> I really appreciate you good being here. The opposite of hate. I encourage all of our viewers to go out and get it. It's great. Great read. Thank you. Thank you. you. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.